Good morning, my relatives. Uh, today is Friday, October 13th. I'm sitting here with my second cup of coffee, and I just wanted to have a conversation with you about the conflict that we are all seeing that's going on right now in the Middle East. And so uh, I wanted to just sit down and share a few thoughts I have about this conflict and about what I'm observing uh, here as someone who is both indigenous to these lands on Turtle Island, but has also traveled extensively in Israel and in Palestine um, and has had many conversations with people there, um, but also as someone who's observed this uh, conflict going on for a number of years, even decades. So anyway, uh, I would like to just sit down and kind of chat about some of this. But before I do, I want to do I want to begin, as I always do, by acknowledging that I'm speaking to you from uh, Piscataway lands. The Piscataway, they're the nation that they were living here and hunting here, farming here and fishing here long before Columbus got lost at sea. And they're still here. I want to acknowledge the Piscataway as the host people of the land where I'm living. I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands. And I just want to state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. And this is very important, especially going into a conversation like the one I want to have with you today about this ongoing conflict and this most recent war between Israel and Hamas uh, in Gaza and in parts of Israel that broke out about seven days ago. So uh, let me go ahead and just see who's online with me and see who's here and say a few good mornings. It's good to have everyone here. Um, Mr. Phil Fox, good to see you. Uh, Shantina, good to have you here. Thanks for joining. Um, I want to thank everyone for taking some time to join me for this discussion this morning. I hope it will be helpful and enlightening as we talk about this conflict going on in the Middle East. Um, let me just show some of the of the news articles that are coming out. The first one is from AP News, and this is just to kind of catch you up if you haven't been following this too closely, but I think many people have. It's just the latest updates on the seventh day of this uh, war between Israel and Hamas. Um, there's also another AP News article that talks about, it actually gives a lot of different kind of highlights of what's been happening in the past few days, one of which is this order by Israel uh, to 1.1 million people in Gaza to basically flee because uh, they have 24 hours to flee before Israel starts an all-out assault on that area. Um, for those of you who haven't been following this or don't know a whole lot, seven days ago, um, Hamas, in a very coordinated and yet surprise attack, um, attacked Israel. And they actually sent in uh, some troops and they had some airstrikes and they had, it was a very coordinated attack. Um, over a thousand uh, uh, Israeli soldiers and civilians died. I think it was close to 1,200 died in that initial attack. Um, and then, of course, Israel fought back and began bombing Gaza and began attacking back in that area. And the latest number that I heard was there were 1,200 Israeli soldiers and civilians who have died and over 1,500 um, Hamas fighters and Palestinians who have died in mostly air attacks. And now, of course, Israel has, which controls Gaza, has uh, laid siege to it. 
they cut off all uh, the the transport of goods and and uh, aid going into Gaza. Uh, they shut down the electricity and they shut down the water, and so um, Gaza is completely under siege right now, um, and uh, it's creating a humanitarian crisis in that area. Um, and now they are warning about an all-out kind of attack on the land and have warned 1.1 million people to leave immediately. And this is virtually impossible, right, to get out 1.1 million people in 24 hours. Um, but this is what they are telling people to do, and they're saying don't come back until you're told to. Uh, again, this creates other problems because obviously if they clear out all of the residents of that area, who's to say Israel will just not continue to occupy it and not let them back. Um, anyway, there's been a lot of emotion on both sides. Of course, the United States jumped in immediately with unequivocal support for Israel um, and other nations have expressed support for Hamas. Um, and uh, it's been uh, a conflict that much of the world has been keeping an eye on, is greatly aware of, and has at least internally, if not explicitly, externally taken sides on which side they will support and which side they will, they will work with. Um, of course, the victims in all of this are both the Israeli and the Palestinian civilians, who are caught up in this conflict and who are being killed um, by this brutal violence displayed by both sides of this. Um, I also want to share another article with you, and this is just so we understand a few things. And I'm going to share first an article from Al Jazeera, just because I think it's important to have a variety of perspectives on what's going on there. And Al Jazeera does provide a bit of a different perspective than a lot of Western media. And there's also an article here because uh, if you're like me, most Americans, we do not know too much about Hamas, um, except that the U.S. has and Israel have called them a terrorist organization, but they are essentially uh, governing uh, Gaza. And so this article gives a little bit of background into who Hamas is and how they came to power and how they're ruling Gaza right now. And so, again, this is just things I, I'm not going to talk about all these things right now, but these are just some of the pieces we really need to understand if we're going to have a good discussion about this. And then the last piece is these. there's two articles I'm sharing. The first one is from The New York Times. Um, I do have a subscription to the New York Times, and I'm not sure if this article is publicly available. I'm going to share it here. You may need to get a, a subscription, and I think you can get a trial subscription. Anyway, it's, uh, it's called Israel, Gaza, and the Laws of War. There's a similar story that's actually in The Guardian, um, which gives some of the same pieces. Um, I like the, the New York Times piece because it gives a bit of an analysis but the Guardian gives at least a lot of the pieces of what are the rules of war and how do they apply in the Israel-Gaza conflict. Um, and the, the one of the main pieces about both of those two articles is that, right, in war, we decided as a globe, essentially, that wars need to be fought humanely. And the only reason for going to war is for self-protection, um, self-defense, and uh, war has to be fought with a very close regard 
high regard for uh, avoiding um, civilian casualties. Um, and obviously, no civilian casualties cannot be entirely avoided, but there has to be a high regard to have as few human casualties as possible in the way that you conduct war. Um, and so this is just a few of the pieces. What I want to talk about today is actually coming a lot from the book I'm writing, right? I'm, I'm in the process of writing my new book called Decolonizing Faith. And I just came back from the CCDA conference in Cincinnati where I gave a seminar on the first chapter of that book, but I also gave kind of an overview of the entire book in that seminar, as well as a lot of my analysis of looking at um, the, the, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and looking especially at the, the transformation of the God figure in those books, where that God figure is introduced as creator in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament becomes known as the God of Abraham. And even we see in the book of Samuel identifies as king of Israel. And so you see this kind of transformation, this progression of the God of the Bible, um, the God of Abraham, transitioning from being known as creator to being known as king. And part of that transformation is uh, the relationship that the God of the Bible establishes. And not just the God of the Bible, right? this is the God of, of the Torah, this is the God of Judaism, this is the God of, of Islam as well, right? Um, and all three of those religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, see the God of Abraham and see Abraham as kind of the, the, one of the fathers or the primary prophets or figures of their religion. And, of course, his faithfulness and obedience to God is held in very high regard by all three religions. All three religions accept Abraham as kind of one of the, the, the early fathers of their faith. And they accept the, the stories of the first five books of the Bible. Um, in both Judaism and Christianity and in Islam. And so uh, the God of Abraham plays a very important role in the formation and in the foundations of all three of these religions. Now, one of the things I'm doing in the book I'm writing is I am looking very closely at the narrative behind the God of Abraham, especially the transformation from this God being identified first and foremost as creator in Genesis, and later, this is going on beyond the Torah, going into uh, first the book of 1 Samuel, where that same God identifies as king, king of Israel. And you see a progression. And one of the things I've, I've been doing is I've been looking at the scriptures, and especially at these first five books, and I've been reading them as and through the lens of not only an indigenous man, but as the grandson of boarding school survivors and of, as, as a member of a nation that experienced the genocidal policies that come when a nation decides that God has given them the right to have promised lands. 
which is exactly what the United States did. They claimed Old Testament Israel's legacy of promised lands, and Abraham Lincoln was one of the primary presidents who went through and ethnically cleansed with some incredible genocidal policies, ethnically cleansed the lands of the northern, the central, and the southern routes of the Transcontinental Railway as he sought to complete manifest destiny. And part of that was the ethnic cleansing and genocide of the mind people, the Navajo people, the Diné from the Southwest. And so I'm writing this book and even reading these scriptures from the framework or from the paradigm of I am an indigenous man who is the son of boarding school survivors. I'm also someone who is from this nation that experienced this, this genocide and someone who was also raised as a white evangelical and has been a Christian for most of my known life. Um, and uh, I'm now looking at these scriptures through a different lens and I'm saying there's some questions we need to ask. And these are questions my grandparents were never given the freedom to ask. These are questions that many indigenous Christians were never given the freedom to ask because they were always under kind of jurisdiction or the auspices of the white Western missionary who very much controlled what they did, what they asked, right? The way you survived the boarding schools is you converted to the religion and didn't question things, right? Didn't, didn't poke your head out too much, um, didn't stick your neck out too much. And so uh, I'm now saying, well, I, I'm a part of this religion, I'm a part of this faith, and I am going to stick my head out because there's absolutely some questions we have to ask. And when I read those five books as an indigenous man, right, I can relate to the stories in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis where creator um, creates the heavens and the earth, right? Does it in a different way than the creation story of, of the Navajo people, but right, this is not a creation story. This is the, the creation story the Jewish people kind of co-opted from the Middle Eastern uh, nations, but this is the re story they recorded, and so it defines their people and their relationship to creator and places them in the land where they live, uh, even by the naming of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And so I can relate to the story because it's, right, this is how creation stories work. And so as a Navajo man who has, we have a creation story as well, I can see and understand the creation story in the book of Genesis, where Creator creates the earth. There's actually two stories, one where Creator creates humans first, the other where Creator creates humans last, but they both signify the importance of, of humans in uh, the creation process. Um, and then we have the introduction of sin, right? And maybe I don't identify completely with the, with the notion of sin through the novel creation story, but obviously there was a breaking of trust and a, a disobedience against God, and that resulted in a punishment where Adam and Eve were banned from the garden. They were sent away by Creator. But Creator wasn't vindictive in this, right? Yes, they, their actions had consequences, but they were still provided for. Right, they were given clothes. Creator made actually made clothes for them to protect them as they went out into this more harsher world outside of this garden where they were first living. Um, the same thing we see with the sons of Adam and Eve, where uh, they have a fight and they end up killing one of them, kills the other, and again the the creator comes and punishes the the son who murders his brother, 
but doesn't do it vindictively, actually puts a mark on him and says that now you'll be protected as you go out even further um, and become more vulnerable to the world. Um, and so there, there's a, there is a sense of creator, yes, holds, his crea- holds creation accountable, but also does it with a sense of provision. Where I began to lose the story in the book of Genesis comes with the story of Noah and the flood. Right now, many indigenous peoples around the world in our creation stories also have a flood narrative. That's not an uncommon narrative. And I will confess, I don't know the stories of most of these uh, indigenous narratives, but I, I've heard and I've had people tell me, yes, our creation story also has a flood narrative. Um, and so it's, it's a common theme in many creation stories. Um, and what's unique about the creation story, the flood narrative in the book of Genesis, what, well, what, what really perks my ears, pricks my ears and seems unique is the flood doesn't just happen right? The flood doesn't just occur even because of the the actions of the people. The flood occurs because creator says, screw it. My creation has become so corrupt, I'm just going to kill everybody. And that seems very vindictive. And as someone who has spent the last 20 years of my life communing on a regular basis with creator, not through the scriptures, but through watching the sunrise, starting back on the reservation when we moved there over 20 years ago and continuing here in Washington, D.C., right? I write about in my book, one of the most important spiritual disciplines I've had in my life was doing as my Navajo people have done for who knows how long, which is rising early in the morning, going towards the east, facing the sun and greeting it with my prayers. And as I've done that over the past 20 years of my life, on a very consistent basis, I have developed a relationship and an understanding and an experience with Creator that is outside of what I see and what I read in the scriptures. It's not framed or even formed by that, this is a practice from my own people. And I have seen and experienced and have come to know creator through that in some very significant ways. And so when I read that in the book of Genesis, creator says, screw it, I'm killing everybody. That doesn't match with the experience I've had with Creator over the past 20 years. And so it pricks my ears. On top of that, it's somewhat very interesting. Well, I'll come back to that. So then we go on in the story, right? Creator wants to destroy everybody, saves a small remnant with Noah, And then later we come across the story of Abraham. And once again, Abraham is the father of both Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And God appears to Abraham, calls Abraham to follow. Abraham goes, demonstrating great faith. And 
uh, Abraham is known as, as a man of great faith, and God makes a covenant with Abraham, a promise that if Abraham continues to follow God, God will bless him. Now, back then, and especially in that area of the world, right, patriarchy ran rampant, um, and Abraham obviously wanted a son and was afraid as he got older that he wasn't going to get one. And so his wife also was afraid they weren't going to have a son. And so she gave Abraham permission to rape her servant girl, Hagar, which Abraham did. And that resulted in the birth of Ishmael, right? But that wasn't the son with his wife, Sarah. That was the result of Abraham raping Hagar. Um, but they were still promised by God that they would have a son between the two of them. And when that son came in Isaac, the story goes in Genesis that creator seemingly jealous, right? As reading this as an outsider, someone who knows creator beyond what's written in the scriptures, right? Seemingly a jealous creator now comes to Abraham and wants to test his devotion and says, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. And Abraham willing, Abraham is willing to do that. He takes his son out, ties him up, takes a sword, is about ready to sacrifice his son when God stops him and instead gives him something else to sacrifice. But now God knows that Abraham is faithful and will not withhold even his own child. And again, this is not how I know creator anymore, right? And what's fascinating is like the, the I can't speak um, with experience about Judaism and Islam, but I know the Christian faith teaches that experience as this is a sign of devotion to God, right? I mean, they hold up that example of look at Abraham's faith. He was even willing to sacrifice his son, and that's portrayed in a positive light. When I go off and I, 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 I lecture in seminaries around the country, Christian seminaries, I ask the students, can God test you the same way he tested Abraham? And it horrifies me how slow the students are to answer. They actually have to think about it. And I have to tell them, no, you cannot do that. The God of Abraham cannot, will not test you. The same way that he tested Abraham. Why? Well, since then, God has given very clear laws. Do not murder. Do not do these things. But it horrifies me how these seminary students have to pause and think about it. Can God ask me to murder even my own child? And I'm like, what are you thinking? Don't, that doesn't even entertain a thought in your mind. But it does for many Western Christians because they hold up that story as a positive story of faith in their even in their flannel graph Sunday school lessons, right? I sat through those lessons when I was a child. So you have the God of Abraham now, who was creator, now testing devotion by seeing if Abraham is willing to 
sacrifice his own son. It gets worse, right? We see in Genesis later the story of Lot and um, Sodom and Gomorrah, where again, creator says, screw it. I'm killing everybody in these cities. Abraham actually tries to bargain for them. Um, we see also when the people of Israel are in are in uh, enslavement in in Egypt and Moses goes to set them free. Um Right, and they, they finally leave Israel after God kills the firstborn of every Egyptian family. Um, Pharaoh finally sets them free, and they're out in the wilderness, and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments from God. And while he's there, the people of Israel get impatient, and they build a, a golden calf, and they decide that they're going to worship this calf, and this is the, the what brought them out of Egypt. And God sees that, and God says to Moses, okay, depart from me because my people have rejected me and I'm going to destroy them. <laughs> right? A very, against, again, a very violent and vindictive understanding of God. And Moses bargains for his people's life. He's like, and that, but he, what's fascinating is the argument Moses uses. He, Moses doesn't use the value of the people that were created by God, Moses instead appeals to God's ego and says, you know, God, if you destroy your people out here in the wilderness, the world who saw you bring them out with a heavy hand from Egypt will think it was with ill intent, with evil intent, you brought them out here just to kill them in the wilderness. He doesn't appeal to the value of creation. He appeals to the God of Abraham's ego, which again is troubling. And the God of Abraham repents, it says, and did not bring on Israel the destruction that was intended. And then when they get to Canaan, the God of Abraham literally tells the people of Israel, and this is in the book of Deuteronomy, right? The God of Abraham literally says this to the people. I'm going to show you this, of how they're supposed to claim their promised lands. And the God of Abraham says in Deuteronomy 20, 16, and 17, However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, the Jezebites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. So now, the God of Abraham is not only saying that destruction is coming to the people living in Canaan, but the God of Abraham is now asking the people of Israel to bring that destruction, right? To bring that destruction themselves. No, it's not the it's not the God of Abraham who's going to do the killing. Now the people of Israel are the ones being asked to do the killing. And so now let's go back to the book of the book of Genesis and back to even the flood story in in uh, Genesis, where after 
God of Abraham says, screw it. I'm killing everybody. Oh, it's not the God of Abraham yet, but after the deity is creator in that story says, screw it. I'm going to kill everybody. And then does that. And then for the small remnant that was saved says, okay, I'm going to put this rainbow in the sky. And I've asked people, I'm like, what do you remember what the rainbow signifies? It's a promise from God, but what does it signify? And most people tell me it signifies that God will never destroy the earth again. And I'm like, no, you're wrong. That's not what the rainbow signifies according to the scriptures. The rainbow signifies that God will never destroy the earth with a flood again. So let's imagine, right, there is an abuser who is physically abusing someone in their care and just violently hurts them with a bat. Okay, we'll just, we'll use the example of a bat. Violently just hurts them. And then as they're walking out of the room, they put a nicely painted sign over the door and says, this is to remind me never to beat you with a bat again. <laughs> it's like, I don't think the bat's the problem, right? I think it's the vindictive, violent, and even erratic behavior of the abuser that's the problem. And this is what we see the God of Abraham doing over and over and over again throughout the scripture. Just coming to the point of, screw it, I'm going to kill everybody. First doing it, I'm going to say himself, because I will argue the God of Abraham is absolutely patriarchal and sexist. Is frequently referred to as he, and I don't like to refer to creator as he. But I will call the God of Abraham he because the God of Abraham does portray all of the attributes of sexism and, monog and misogyny that we see in modern <laughs> life today. And so, yeah, we'll call the God of Abraham a he. And the God of Abraham destroys people himself at first and then later asks his people to do the destruction for him, as we see as they go into Canaan. And this is the God that is has the covenant with the, the forefather of all three of these religions, right? And so in this conflict we have in the Middle East, in Gaza right now, we have Israel. And if you don't think Israel still thinks this way, let me remind you, right? Let me remind you in 2015 when Benjamin Netanyahu, who is now again the prime minister of Israel, he came here to lobby against a, a, a nuclear deal that the Obama administration was negotiating with Iran, right? He came here to lobby for that. And he spoke to a joint session of Congress. And that Congress was just as divided as Congress is today. The Republican Party wasn't as dysfunctional as it is today. But the two parties were absolutely divided. And could hardly even look at each other or speak to each other. And Prime Minister Netanyahu had to get everyone on the same page behind him. And so early in his speech, he referred to one of the most unifying um, topics in American politics, which is the 
the theme of American exceptionalism, and he said to our Congress, because America and Israel, we share a common destiny, the destiny of promised lands, right? And I use this to point out in my lectures, in my book, the United States of America and the modern nation state of Israel absolutely have a dysfunctional codependent relationship. And it's centered on this use of promised lands, right? The United States of America needs the modern nation state of Israel's legacy of Old Testament promised lands to justify what we did to native peoples and to African people. And the modern nation state of Israel needs our flourishing as a nation with a manifest destiny to justify what they're doing to Palestinians and Bedouins. And I do not want to forget Bedouins in the midst of this conflict. Because in my opinion, having been there, having talked with the Bedouin community, I would actually view them as the absolute pawns in this conflict. And yet we never hear about them. And so we have to include the Bedouins in this conflict because they're the ones when Palestinians take over land, they move the Bedouins. When Israelis take over land, they move the Bedouins and the Palestinians. And it's right, this is, they're the pawns with very little political power in the entire scheme. So we have to include them. And so there is a dysfunctional, codependent relationship between the modern nation-state of Israel and the United States of America, and it's rooted in this misappropriation in the 20th and 21st centuries of the use of promised lands, a legacy which both nations continue to cling to. And all three of these players, the United States, and Israel and Hamas are governments, are governments that use their religion to prop up their government. All three of them. The United States, for all of our diversity and pluralism, still absolutely identifies as Christian. This is why we have unequivocal support for, for Israel in our, in our bipartisan support for Israel in our Congress because we cling like everything to the myth of our own exceptionalism, which is rooted in the lie of white supremacy, which comes from the doctrine of discovery, which was a Christian doctrine. Israel obviously is rooted in Judaism and Hamas obviously is rooted in Islam. And so we have these three religions that all claim Abraham as their father. And speaking as an outsider, as an indigenous man who knows creator outside of what was written in a book, the God of Abraham appears to be incredibly violent, abusive, vindictive, and even grooming followers to partake in that violence. 
also seems to be on a road from identifying as creator to identifying as king. I think all three of these players need to be challenged to examine this God that they all hold in common and to ask, might not the thing that prevents them from living in healthy community with each other be the way all three have twisted their original relationship with Creator. Form Creator in their own image and use Creator to justify not just individual violent acts, but literally state-sponsored, I'm going to call it terrorism. Right? Again, the Hamas war didn't, the, the, the Israel-Hamas war didn't start seven days ago. It didn't. Right? Even if you just look in the past couple years, right, Israeli settlers were claiming more and more of Gaza, moving into the West Bank and other parts and establishing, and that was happening, right? And that goes back even further to even the development of the modern nation state of Israel in the first place. And right, all of this has happened with this deeply flawed understanding on all sides. And I'm not just going to pick on one side, on all sides of this conflict. And I think this group represented at the moment by the United States, Israel, and Hamas, needs someone who knows Creator, who has not, does not come from a faith that has twisted Creator into the God of Abraham, which portrays some incredibly violent, vindictive, and even abusive patterns and behaviors. And say, can we examine what looks like is the actual root of this problem of your absolute inability to get along? And how can we have a dialogue around that? Of course, no one is in the political sphere is going to discuss this. No one's going to actually go there. But as an indigenous man, someone who has been on the receiving end of the genocidal actions and policies of a nation that adheres to the teachings of the God of Abraham. I can tell you, these people don't know Creator very well. They are wrong. And we have to find a way to get past justifying this incredibly violent, brutal, 
behavior towards one another in the name of their God. And all three of those parties do that. So this is my thoughts. These are my thoughts. Anyway, as an indigenous man, if I had a voice into this conflict and I could sit down with the Muslim clerics, the Jewish rabbis, and the Christian priests and pastors and politicians in the US, this is how I would challenge them. And it pains me to see the way that these three religions could cause such global conflict and yet not acknowledge the problem is rooted in what it appears they've done to Creator. And they've all created these narratives that justify, even call for, these incredibly brutal, abusive, and violent tactics. Anyway, these are my thoughts. I haven't read much of these comments. I know there's a lot of people going back and forth. I'll read these a bit later. But I wanted just to lay this out for people. And I wanted to offer this perspective and hope that this can engage some sort of healthy dialogue Again, this is literally the reason why I'm writing the book I'm writing, Decolonizing Faith. That's why I'm writing this book, because I'm, I'm reading the scriptures that I've read and studied and followed for my entire life. And I'm reading them as the son of boarding school survivors and the ancestors of a nation that received acts of genocide from a people following the God of Abraham. And I'm saying, yeah, there is something deeply, deeply broken here. I'm not saying these religions are entirely wrong. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying their inability to critique what it is they've done with Creator. And to see the consequences of these actions. That's what I'm saying is we have to have a conversation about this because we can't continue in this, in this vein. This is going to absolutely lead to continued destruction and even annihilation. So I want to bring a different perspective into the conversation. And I hope you find this perspective helpful. Um, I hope you find this perspective helpful. I need to make sure I plug in my computer here. I just got a sign it was going to die. But anyway, thank you, my relatives, for joining me today. If you would like to learn more about my perspective and follow me, obviously, I do these second cups of coffee. I try to do them at least once a week. Sometimes I do them twice a week. If you want to follow even my journey to know creator outside of what I read in books, um, 
On a regular basis, I go to the Potomac River here on Piscataway lands and I watch the sunrise. And I invite people to join me as I live stream the sunrise and I offer a brief prayer of thanksgiving and just uh, express gratitude for the creation that we are all surrounded by. Those videos are on my YouTube channel. I'm putting them there. I stream it live on uh, Facebook and then I download the video and upload it to YouTube and put it on Twitter and a few other places. So I share it all there. You're welcome to join me for those or even to go back and watch some of those. Obviously, I have written a book called On Selling Truths, which engages a lot of this history, primarily from a Christian perspective. But I invite you, if you want to learn more about that book, um, you can do that. Um, uh, you can order copies of that book from my website. And then on my Patreon, which is um, my subscription uh, uh, social media that I use, I have a tier there called Decolonizing Faith. And on that tier, I, every month I give a, uh, a kind of a talk about some of the content I'm developing for my new book. I, I talk through these things. I'm an extrovert, and so I need a forum to kind of publicly talk through these things and lay them out and get feedback on them. And I do that uh, once a month on my Patreon channel. Um, that same tier, Decolonizing Faith, also has a 12-part video series created by myself and my co-author, Sing Chan Ra, where we go through all the chapters of Unsettling Truths. There's another tier there called Ask Questions, where um, you can jump online once a month and have a Q&A with me to talk about some of these things. So there's a lot of resources, both archived as well as um, available there. If you even if you subscribe just for a month, um, you can you can uh, binge all of the videos on that tier and get a lot of content within a month or two months um, that have been there for a couple of years. So anyway, um, this is yeah, this is an important conversation. And again, like I always try to do, I want to have a discussion about what I think is the root of the problem. And there is a problem, right? with this conflict and right now the three primary players is we have the united states israel and hamas we have christianity judaism and islam and if we don't address the unifying broken narratives from those three traditions we're never going to get to the root of the problem and that's what i'm trying to do Hope this is helpful, my relatives. Walk in beauty. May we all learn how to walk in beauty together. Ahyahat. And how go on that.